Okay, good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Xavier Lavandeira. I'm director of FSR Climate, and uh, I welcome you all to this uh, live streaming with Leonardo Masai. Uh, it's a very nice day here in Florence, sunny day. We are in a very nice uh, building, uh, Villa Malafrasca, and uh, I'm surrounded by around uh, 10 people, 15 people. Um, and I'm sure that we also have a lot of uh, people uh, following us in, in, the, in the web through this live streaming. So um, we are going to talk today uh, about uh, Paris and uh, the title of this, of this uh, presentation by Leonardo Masai, whom I will introduce uh, shortly, is the real value of the Paris Agreement. We've been uh, very interested in Paris in, in, in FSR climate. Uh, we had a six-month almost uh, kind of program, uh, the road to Paris, uh, with many things, including the visit of uh, Lord Stern, uh, Martin Weitzman, and many other things here in, in Florence. Uh, I also went to the Paris COP participated there, uh, moderating a, a side event of the European Commission on the EU ETS. And after uh, the COP, uh, we had a, an online debate uh, from an economics uh, point of view on the implications of, of the Paris COP with, uh, I would say, three leading economists from all over the world, uh, European economist Carlo Carraro, American economist uh, Joe Aldi, Chinese economist, uh, Liang. And today, this can be seen as a follow-up of that. And uh, we are very lucky to have with us uh, Leonardo, Leonardo Masai. Um, you have uh, his profile in the website. He's senior lecturer of EU law, international EU environmental law uh, at the Catholic University of Lille in, in France. And he's also legal advisor to the Coalition for Rainforest Nations. And also, you know, he's the co-founder of a startup, Climalia, a specialist consulting on, on, on these topics of, of climate change and, and, and climate issues. Um, the good thing about Leonardo is that uh, he's been really involved in, in all these negotiations. He, he, we will talk about this uh, later after the presentation, probably in the debate on his actual uh, participation and, and how he has been uh, involved with many uh, countries in the process and, and what's uh, his experience uh, in this area uh, been. Um, for us, it's a real... Um, Pleasure to have you here, Leonardo. Thank you very much. Uh, we are also very lucky because Leonardo lives nearby, lives in, in Prato, near Florence. Uh, although he's uh, traveling a lot and, and, and a very busy person, so we are we are lucky to have him close, not only for this presentation but also to interact with us uh, uh, frequently. He's been here for for a few times uh, already, and he's approach, which is uh, a, a non-economist approach, in a way, is more uh, a, a real person, uh, um, a person from law, uh, and a real person in these in this negotiations. Sometimes uh, here we, we talk from an abstract point of view, we, as academics, 
and uh, we, we don't know much uh, about what's going on in, in, in the details. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm very sure that uh, his approach will be very uh, useful for us. So I'm not taking more time. I think he's uh, spending about uh, 45 minutes. And then we'll have uh, a debate. Uh, we have uh, uh, very qualified people from the EUI uh, here uh, with us, uh, specialists in, in energy and, and, and climate and economics. But I'm sure that we will have also questions from, from the external audience. Uh, Leonardo will show you uh, at the end of his presentation the, the, the email you can use uh, to to contact us, um, you also have it in the in the in the web page uh, that I'm sure that you that you know because if you are following us, uh, you, you you know this website on on the on the live streaming. So Leonardo, uh, the floor is yours. Thanks again. Okay. Good morning, everybody, and thank you, thank you very much, Xavier, for the invitation. And for me, it's a real pleasure to be here in this very beautiful part of Florence. Um, I, I'm going to walk you through the, the Paris Agreement. Uh, but before I start, let me say that um, uh, whatever I'm going to say uh, in this, in this uh, seminar, in this webinar, is just my personal interpretation. It doesn't represent any position of any government in the negotiation or any body, uh, international body uh, I am serving uh, currently. Um, yes, the title uh, of, uh, of the presentation is quite ambitious, uh, the real value of the Paris Agreement. And uh, um, yes, I hope I will, uh, I will keep up with the, with the expectation. And uh, just before I start, uh, Xavier was talking about the, the email address uh, just at the beginning. I'm going uh, to uh, uh, emphasize the email address to which you can address the questions at the end uh, of the presentation. So the contents of my, of my presentation will be to give you a very brief background of, uh, of, uh, of the negotiation and where we started, uh, the meat, the content of the Paris Agreement, and the way forward. So I will try to be as, uh, as quick as possible and, uh, and to give you all the basic information in these in this 40 minutes. But uh, as Xavier said, uh, there will be time for, for questions uh, uh, afterwards. So as you can see from, from the picture, the result that was reached in Paris uh, a few months ago in December last year, it's an historical result. We have finally found uh, an agreement for the new climate treaty which will guide uh, climate change action uh, uh, for the period after 2020. And the picture on the, on the screen is the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the president of the, of the COP, COP21, the foreign minister of France, Minister Fabius, which was very happy at the end to have concluded uh, successfully this very important meeting. And uh, this was uh, not granted, so it was really a great achievement. So I'm going to walk you through the details of the agreement uh, and to see what is uh, the value of this agreement, what is the, 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 the way forward, which are the next step, and whether this agreement is at this stage, can be considered at this stage uh, 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 an important agreement and a milestone in the fight against uh, climate change. So first of all, uh, what we have to say, uh, the, the situation from a scientific point of view, when talking about climate change and the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, we must recognize that the science, the scientists, and namely the IPCC, 
which is providing scientific reports uh, uh, on climate change, is telling us that we have a limit, a limit which is the two degrees Celsius limit for the increase of the temperature by the year 2100 uh, compared to pre-industrial level. So in uh, 2007, the IPCC told the world that the limit uh, that we should not uh, overcome is the two degrees Celsius by the year 2100. And in 2013, the new report of the IPCC is also telling us that uh, this limit can also and should also actually be lower than that and is pointing to 1.5. So 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius is an important number that we have always to remember, and it's a number which we will see uh, represented in the Paris Agreement. Uh, the problem is that uh, uh, the situation that we have now with the pledges and with the contribution of states and countries, and we will talk about that, is taking the world to a path which will bring us to a 3.5 degrees increase of temperature by the year 2100. So the first point that we have to stress is that there is a gap, there is a gap in the ambition, and that is the ambition gap. The gap in the ambition of the actions which are required by the international community to fight climate change. And the ambition gap is exactly the difference from where the science is telling the world to be and where we stand at the moment with the, with the contribution of states. Uh, of course, there are consequences in the, in the event that uh, the two degrees Celsius will be overcome, and uh, these are given by the IPCC report. So the situation when we started before Paris is the one that you see in the screen, where a, a world is leading to a 3.5 degrees increase of the temperature. And the decision which was taken by Paris, decision 1, CP21, is stressing this gap, this ambition gap, and stressing the fact that uh, um, we need greater emission reduction efforts. So that was the starting point before Paris, and that's already, and that is still a point of interest and a very key point now that Paris was agreed. The fact that we need greater emission reduction. Greater emissions reduction will be needed in the, far, in the future if we want to keep to the two degrees Celsius uh, target, uh, and, and obviously even more reductions are needed if we want to keep to the, to the 1.5 degrees Celsius target. So that's the ambition gap. This, the very few uh, words on the background. The background of the Paris Agreement is the international climate regime, which is an international regime based on two international treaties. One is the Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, and the other one is the Kyoto Protocol. The Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed in 1992 and entered into force in 1994, and it's the mother convention of the climate change regime. And this convention is a framework convention, which means that it sets the general objective for the fight against climate change. It codifies some very important key principles of international environmental law. One uh, above the others is the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities, the CBDR principle, which is at the background, at the foundation of the entire climate change regime. And uh, thanks to this principle, the convention in 1994 uh, divided the world in two, two different blocks. From one side, the developed countries, which are those countries which are listed in the Annex 1 to the convention, and on the other side, all those countries which are not listed in the Annex 1, which are called non-Annex 1 countries, or uh, also called developing countries. And this division is at the foundation of the international climate regime uh, as set up by the Convention on, on Climate Change. And on the basis of this principle, on the basis of this division, uh, there are also differentiated commitments under the convention. 
um, which reflects also the different uh, position of countries in the different list. The convention is, in, is a global convention and is covering uh, all the international community, all major international states, uh, sovereign states in the world, plus one regional economic integration organization, which is the European Union, which is acting like a state, which is assuming rights and obligations as a state in international law. And is acting, of course, on behalf of 28 member states. So the follow-up of the convention is the Kyoto Protocol, which was uh, opened for signature in 1997, uh, but entered into force only eight years after in 2005, so a long period before the entry into force of the Kyoto Protocol. Why that? Because the Kyoto Protocol is uh, much more aggressive than the convention, is still an international treaty, which is related to the convention, but independent. The Kyoto Protocol is not dead. The Kyoto Protocol is still alive, so contrary to what many media are saying on, on the news, the, the, the Paris Agreement is not of superseding and overseeding the Kyoto Protocol. The Kyoto Protocol remains in place and will continue to, to do so unless party will decide uh, otherwise. And the Kyoto Protocol is a very innovative international treaty on environmental protection. Uh, it's setting legally binding reduction obligations only for developed countries, and that's a very important point. The Kyoto Protocol established reduction and legally binding obligations only for developed countries, and that's why developing countries, uh, that's one of the reasons why developing countries are so uh, uh, fond and so in love with the Kyoto Protocol in particular. And the Kyoto Protocol also set different commitment periods. Now we are in the second commitment period, 2013 to 2020. Uh, we have a base year uh, uh, upon which the reduction obligations are calculated. It's in force since 2005. Uh, notably, and very important, uh, the United States of America decided not to ratify the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, now in the second period, the second period also requires uh, a ratification by party since it is uh, an, amend an amendment to the Kyoto Protocol. Um, this second commitment period has not been ratified by many parties. In terms of developed countries, we only have the European Union, Norway, Iceland, and Switzerland, which are on board. Uh, many other countries, uh, like the US, Canada, Russian Federation, Australia, New Zealand, are not on board so far, and uh, uh, I doubt they will uh, ever be. So the Kyoto Protocol, in terms of uh, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions at the moment, is only covering a very small portion of the global reduction of emissions. And that's why we need it, and we need a strong new climate agreement, and that's why Paris. The Kyoto Protocol is also important, very important, because it creates the so-called flexible mechanism, so it opens the way to the international carbon trading mechanisms, uh, which is very important uh, in many parts of the world. Uh, it's also important because it gives a role and recognizes the role of forest in absorbing CO2, and it's also important because it establishes a very strong non-compliance regime. And we will see all these points when talking about the Paris Agreement in a, few, in a few moments. And the compliance regime of the Kyoto Protocol is a punitive system, quasi-judicial, so it's quite very strong, and it's uh, also very advanced. So why are we now with the Paris Agreement? What is the, the background? The, 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 the background story is that in 2005 in Montreal, by COP11, parties decided to launch the negotiation for the future commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol. Um, but only if also another track of negotiation would have started. And that's what it's called the convention track. So in 2005, and then formally in 2007 with the COP13 in Bali, the two parallel tracks of climate negotiation started. 
And it took us uh, 10 years to, to get to a final uh, compromise, a final agreement in Paris. Uh, we also have to remember that any decision which is taken under this, uh, under this regime, under this uh, negotiation, under the COP, uh, has to meet the, the requirement of consensus. Consensus is a, is a legal practice uh, which is recognized, uh, and it's uh, the, the procedure through which uh, decisions are adopted in this, uh, in this regime, in, this, uh, in these meetings, in the conference of the parties. Um, and that's actually a, a, a procedure, a system, a process which requires the satisfaction of all parties. And we're talking about 195 states, 195 governments. Uh, therefore, finding consensus is not always very simple and very easy. So the negotiation process started in 2005 and then formally in 2007 with the Bali Action Plan with the main goal to find a new climate regime, a new climate treaty which uh, ideally should uh, merge the Kyoto Protocol and the Convention approaches and ideally should involve all parties without any more specific differentiation among developing and developed countries. A new climate treaty which should also engage uh, developed countries like the US, but also big emitters, big developing countries like China, India, Brazil, and others. So the main goal was to have a global treaty, a global regime. And um, the, the road was set in Bali with the Bali Action Plan, which uh, still in Paris is representing the, backstone, the backbone and, and the foundation of the entire uh, regime, the Bali Action Plan, which was divided in five key areas, the global uh, uh, reduction efforts needed uh, uh, to, to, to keep the global temperature at a certain level, mitigation, adaptation, finance, technology, and capacity building. All these elements are now replicated in the Paris Agreement. And the road to Paris, which actually was actually launched formally in Durban, since Bali had the roadmap which was uh, thought to last only two years. So in Bali in 2007, parties decided to, uh, to establish this roadmap and decided also that the negotiations should have concluded in 2009 to the famous, into the famous COP15 in Copenhagen. In Copenhagen, unfortunately, there was no uh, an, a, a consensus and no agreement for the Copenhagen Accord. So the Copenhagen Accord, which was agreed, literally discussed and negotiated by heads of state and government in a room very small like, like this one, um, what was not formally adopted by COP, by COP15. Why? Because of the lack of consensus. When 10, 15 countries on the floor spoke up and, uh, and spoke up against the Copenhagen Accord, although this was uh, politically and presidentially agreed by heads of state and government uh, a few hours before. So the Copenhagen Accord was not formally adopted by COP15, but it was uh, in another sense, indirectly uh, introduced in the UNFCCC climate regime uh, uh, through uh, the, COP, the decision which was taken by COP15. COP15 took note of the accord, but it, it did not adopt it because of the lack of consensus. So in, in Copenhagen, uh, um, the, the negotiation did not conclude and actually continued. And you can see on the screen uh, uh, the roadmap which took us to Paris, a very important Point is COP17 in Durban in 2011, when the parties to the convention decided to launch a new negotiation, uh, the so-called Durban platform, a new negotiation which should have concluded in Paris. And this was actually the result that we had last year in Paris. Negotiation under the conference of the parties, under the convention 
uh, will continue even after Paris. So now this year we will, go, we will have COP22 in Marrakesh, and this will continue and will continue uh, for many years uh, in the future. So the agreement which was reached in Durban was very important, and it was the mandate which was given to, by COP17 to the, to the parties to negotiate the Paris Agreement. The mandate is to launch a process to develop, and then here we have three options, a protocol, another legal instrument, or an agreed outcome with legal force under the convention. So there were three options which were agreed in Durban after intense nights of negotiation. The COP in Durban lasted until the Sunday, so it lasted two days more than expected. Uh, and the result was the, a compromise on these three options which uh, for many years and still now, especially the third one, are for many lawyers, for many uh, decision makers, is still uh, quite unknown what is the meaning of the third option, agreed outcome with legal force. But it was put there in order to find compromise, especially in order to, to welcome the request of big developing countries. Very important decision in Durban is that whatever result should have been achieved in 2015, this should be applicable to all parties. And this was recognized by many as a very... Uh, successful sentence applicable to all parties. And the mandate specifically, specifically is at the end of the screen where the work should have been concluded no later than 2015 for a new instrument to come into force and to effect uh, uh, and be implemented after 2020. So that is the, the mandate for the climate negotiation and for the COP2021 in Paris. Um, the, the negotiation um, process is a, is a very complex process. Uh, the, we have uh, early the meeting of the conference of the parties, plus at the uh, in the middle of the year we have the meeting of subsidiary bodies to the convention, but since 2007 we have been having uh, four international meetings per year, so four formal negotiation setting every year. So it's a, it's a long process. Actually, in 2015, last year, before Paris, we had five international um, sessions, including the, the final one in Paris. So it's a very complex system. It's a very uh, big machinery, which is run by the convention, by the convention secretariat, which uh, um, has took us after 10 years to come to, to Paris and to adopt the Paris Agreement. So this is just uh, the program of work which... Uh, uh, was adopted uh, for 2015, five international sessions with the final one in Paris. Very important is the first one, which was held at the beginning of 2015 in Geneva, when the uh, ADP, the, 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 the subsidiary body which was um, in charge of adopting the, the uh, agreeing and negotiating the, the, the Paris Agreement, uh, adopted the negotiating text formally in Geneva last session, it last, uh, in 2015 February. And the negotiating text adopted uh, in Geneva uh, was then presented formally and published formally in the six official languages of the UN uh, by May 2015 in order to meet the so-called six-month rule, which is the rule that says that any uh, amendment or any international uh, treaty uh, attached to the convention should be presented, the draft text should be presented at least six months before. So this deadline was met in Geneva, and the negotiating text adopted in Geneva was a very long text, um, 86 pages, uh, including the chapters which are on the screen, and which are actually the main chapters which are still part of the Paris Agreement. 
So success in Geneva, but a very big text with a lot of proposals, a lot of uh, uh, options in the text. And the real challenge last year was to come to Paris with a short, concise treaty which could uh, um, embrace and could uh, welcome the, um, the instances of all parties. And that's what we finally uh, reached in Paris. So some initial consideration about the Paris Agreement. This was adopted by COP21 as an attachment to uh, a decision by the COP21. So decision 1 CP21 as, as, as an attachment uh, the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement is legally binding. Around the term legally binding, there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of negotiation. Many parties have been using uh, the argument of a legally binding in different ways, stretching from one uh, side to the other. But what we can say for sure is that the Paris Agreement is an international treaty. And according to the Vienna Convention on the Law of the Treaties, uh, this treaty is binding upon parties and it must be implemented in uh, good faith the Pacta Sunt Servanda. So there is no doubt that the Paris Agreement is an international treaty. More doubts are on what is the, the, the strength and the, and the legal force of the agreement. Many are calling the Paris Agreement very weak. Others are, um, have welcomed the Paris Agreement uh, with, uh, as a lot of success. Uh, so we still have to consider what is the real uh, uh, value of this, of this international agreement. Um, definitely, the Paris Agreement reflects the highest political commitment possible up to now, since uh, uh, this was endorsed by all the heads of state and government which are, were present in Paris in the first two days of the meeting. The result of the Paris Agreement uh, was also highly predictable, at least for people working and negotiating that in the field. This is actually not something completely new. Everybody around uh, negotiation knew uh, more or less, what would have been the, the result of Paris. The failure was not contemplated, so the French presidency was really good in uh, conducting uh, important negotiations before Paris, but also during the meeting. And the failure, the failure which we saw in Copenhagen in 2009, was not contemplated. And actually, in the very final days of the negotiation in Paris, uh, the co-president, Minister Fabius, established the so-called Comité de Paris, uh, a committee of uh, uh, reducing numbers in terms of delegates uh, with uh, heads of delegation, ministers, to just to decide and to decide on the main crunch issues. So the French diplomacy did work very well. They maintained all the ex expectation except one. And actually, the one expectation which was not met, it, it is the fact that we didn't finish on time. And uh, we did not finish the Friday of the second week of the COP21, but we, we finished the Saturday in, in the late afternoon. And this delay was due to the final uh, negotiation and final compromise, which, must, uh, which had to be considered. It's a natural conclusion of a process which was initiated, was initiated in 2005, and it's covering all parties. So the Dharma mandate, mandate uh, was fully respected. Here we have just a very um, uh, a table which is just comparing the convention, the Kyoto Protocol, the Copenhagen Accord, and the Paris Agreement, which are, according to me, the, the key four pieces of the current international climate regime. And we can see that there are some differences among them. Uh, the Copenhagen Accord is not a legally binding treaty, it's just a, 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 a political uh, agreement, a political declaration. The convention is a framework treaty, so general. The Kyoto Protocol is more specific with legally binding commitments. What is the Paris Agreement? Where does it stand? Well, this is uh, arguable. Is it a framework treaty or is it specific? 
my, my interpretation is going more towards the, 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 the fact that the Paris Agreement is a framework treaty. So it's not very specific as it was the Kyoto Protocol. Um, there are different objectives in this, in this, uh, um, in this uh, document. And the Paris Agreement is based on the political agreement which was reached in Copenhagen in 2009. And indeed, uh, it reflects the number, the only number which was present in Copenhagen, the two degrees Celsius. What we have in the Paris Agreement is also a reference to the 1.5 limit. Very important, the approach, the approach with the Convention and with the Kyoto Protocol is a top-down approach, where obligations, targets were decided uh, by the COP, by all parties together, and imposed to states. With the Paris Agreement, we have a new approach, which is mainly based on the, on the Copenhagen Accord. And it's a bottom-up approach. And the Paris Agreement is entirely, or mostly entirely, based on this approach, which means that it gives parties, states, countries, um, the freedom and the right to decide which actions they want to implement, to what level, and, uh, and all the details of that. So it's a bottom-up approach. The, the efforts, the contributions are coming from states, from governments. That's a very important point. Uh, the Convention, the Kyoto Protocol, as well as the Copenhagen Accord, have a clear differentiation among developing and developed countries, especially because of the Annex 1 list. In the Paris Agreement, the issue of differentiation uh, has been dealt with, but not entirely uh, resolved. And why? Because this was uh, sincerely a very, very important topic, a very difficult topic to to, um, to get consensus on. How do we treat big developing countries like China, India, and Brazil? And how do we differentiate among, among developing countries? Or how do we differentiate among contributions for developing and developed countries? So the Paris Agreement doesn't uh, give a final word on that, unfortunately. It talks in the text about developed countries and developing countries, but it does not refer to the annex to the convention of the convention. So it is the result of a compromise, as many international treaties and as that, it also has some uh, areas of different interpretation. Different interpretation can be given by parties, of course. And that's the price if we want to have a universal international treaty. And also very important, the type of mitigation obligation, which is uh, the thing that uh, all the media, everyone is uh, looking at first. In the convention, we were talking about commitments. General, uh, not specific, but differentiated commitments. In the Kyoto Protocol, we have legally binding commitments. In the Copenhagen Accord, we were talking about quantified economy-wide emission targets. With the Paris Agreement, we have a new terminology, which is on the screen, NDC, Nationally Determined Contribution. So I leave to you and to the, uh, and to the people on, on, on the internet to, to interpret this difference in language. So we started with commitments, uh, Convention, Kyoto Protocol, then we went through targets, and now we ended up in contributions. So we now have nationally determined contribution, and that already gives you the indication uh, of what is the Paris Agreement. So contribution, which must be nationally determined, which must come from governments. So let's walk through very briefly uh, to the main part of the agreement, which is, uh, of course, uh, quite a long text. And it is uh, attached to the decision. So the agreement main blocks is the first one in Article 2, the objective. As you can see on the screen, the objective of the agreement, at least the, in terms of wording, is quite long. 
and the main objective is to strengthen the global response to the threat of climate change. And there are uh, three uh, elements included in this objective. The first one, which is the one which is really relevant, is that the global average temperature must be uh, kept well below 2 degrees Celsius. But also in the same sentence, we also have a reference to the 1.5. So also parties have to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5. So why do we have two numbers, 2 and 1.5, in the same uh, article, in one of the most important articles of the treaty, the objective? The reason is that there was not possible to find a compromise on one number. So we had to accommodate, to accommodate uh, the different interests of parties. So that's why we have two references in the objective of the agreement. One, the first two, uh, well below two degrees, and the other one to the 1.5. And um, obviously, uh, small island states and the least developed countries, they were, of course, more in favor of a 1.5 degree uh, uh, limit cap. To the, to the, into the uh, augmentation of the global temperature. And very important also that the objective is referring to adaptation, which is another key element of the Paris Agreement, how countries will adapt to the negative effects of climate change, but also to finance. So there are three elements in the objective, mitigation, the first one, adaptation, and finally finance. So parties need to receive finance um, in order to, 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 to contribute to global efforts towards climate change and also a very important reference to low greenhouse gas emissions and climate resilient development. So the objective of the Paris Agreement is a global objective very similar in style to the objective, main objective of the convention. Then we have Article 3, which is uh, uh, together with Article 4, the meat of the agreement in terms of mitigation. And the Article 3 is referring to national, nationally determined contribution, which should be part of the global response and to, should be the way to reach the 2 degrees Celsius and the 1.5 degrees Celsius. And very important is that Article 3 says that uh, these contributions will have to represent a progression over time. So they will have to, uh, to be increased. The reference to the NDC is also uh, mentioned in Article 4, which is the, also the key article of the Paris Agreement about mitigation. It's a very long article which talks about mitigation, so the global efforts and individual efforts uh, in order to reach the two degrees Celsius uh, limit. Uh, there was no agreement on uh, establishing a specific year for the global peaking. The global peaking of greenhouse gas emissions is recognized in the Paris Agreement, but without the deadline. So parties' compromise was as soon as possible. So many parties proposed 2030, 2025, 2040, different time frames, but there was no agreement, no consensus. So they compromised that the global peaking of greenhouse gas emissions must be reached ASAP, which, of course, it depends on uh, different interpretation. Um, each party, very important part of Article 4, is that each party should prepare, communicate, and maintain NDCs, nationally determined contribution that it intends to achieve. So there was no agreement on having a stronger uh, language for this very important part of, uh, of the treaty. So there was no agreement on including e an obligation to implement NDC. There was no agreement on including an obligation to achieve the result of the NDCs in the Paris Agreement. The agreement, the, the compromise was that parties shall prepare, communicate, and maintain successive NDCs. And again, this is very much in, in line with the style of the convention, much more than the Kyoto Protocol. 
NDC will represent a progression over time. So the next NDCs, which will be presented by parties, will have to be more ambitious in the future. A very important uh, uh, part is that developed country parties should continue taking the lead. And on this specific uh, word and verb should, uh, we also have to stress that in the final hours, in the final minutes of the final meeting in Paris, before Minister Fabius uh, uh, formally adopted the agreement, uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, expressed a request to change uh, uh, and this, uh, um, this term from shall to should as part of the pre previously achieved and reached compromise uh, in the negotiation. Um, support should be provided to developing country parties that also part of uh, uh, the mitigation section of the agreement. And uh, NDCs are treated by the agreement uh, um, uh, in the sense that uh, every five years NDCs will have to be presented. And there will be also a system to account on what parties will do, whether parties will meet or not their NDCs, and that's the accounting system. Uh, but many of these details will have to be decided afterwards. So that's another point of the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement, the text is there, but many of the operative details, many of the rules of this agreement will be decided in the next years. The same mistake that, was, that happened in Kyoto when in 97 parties agreed on the Kyoto Protocol, but then only uh, uh, adopted the rules of the, of the game in 2001, four years after in Marrakesh. Another important part of the agreement is the agreement referring to forest, and in particular Red Plus, which is Article 5, and uh, which uh, formally recognizes that uh, all the decisions which have been adopted on the issue of, uh, of forest for developing countries of Red Plus are now set. So the Red Plus mechanism is now in place, which is just the set of decisions which have been adopted uh, up to now by all parties. And um, uh, Article 5 uh, it's, uh, uh, gives a very important signal uh, to the world and to the international community on this specific mechanism to fight deforestation and forest degradation, uh, although uh, many parties did not even want to mention this uh, at the beginning of the meeting. Finally, there was an agreement and many rainforest nations were successfully in the negotiation in order to mention and to reflect uh, the, the issue of Red Plus in the treaty. Article says it's also another important article because it, it talks about the so-called flexibility or uh, we can call them a various approaches. So how do we deal with the issue of the, of, uh, the flexibility? And when I say the flexibility, I refer mainly to the flexibility introduced by the Kyoto Protocol, so to the so-called market-based um, uh, world, the market-based instrument uh, established by the Kyoto Protocol. Paris doesn't give us a final word on that. Again, this is a very controversial issue which will be taken up again in the next negotiation, which will start in a few weeks in Bonn. Uh, so there is no final agreement on whether or not there will be a new market-based instrument, on whether or not there will be a new uh, trading system. What we have in Paris is just that parties agree that there will be a voluntary cooperation, and there will be cooperative approaches. So the word market is not mentioned there, too sensitive for many parties or for some. Uh, the word which is mentioned there is cooperative approaches. What is that? Yeah, we will have to be discussed again. But it's for sure that this will involve what? The use of internationally transferred mitigation outcomes. And again, that's a language which was the result of many, many hours of negotiation in the last 10 years. The result is this, uh, again, hybrid terminology 
internationally transferred mitigation outcomes um, will and could be transferred among states. What are those? It will have to be defined by whom? By the CMA, which is uh, the equivalent of the COP now established under the Paris Agreement. So this is the supreme body, which will have to decide the rules of, uh, of this game, for instance. And another instrument, which was established by Paris Agreement mechanism, is the so-called Sustainable Development Mechanism, uh, which is established, but uh, the details of that are not clear, again, are not mentioned in the treaty. Uh, it will have to be decided again by the CMA. And the CMA will convene for the first time only when the Paris Agreement will enter into force. There is also a reference to no market approaches into the in the text of the Paris Agreement, but again, this is uh, open to different interpretation and parties have different views on that. So clearly, there is not a final word on this issue by the Paris Agreement, and there is a lot, uh, a lot again, to do in the next months, in the next years. There is a specific article on adaptation. Adaptation, the, the climate agreement, the Paris Agreement established the global goal on adaptation. What is that global goal? Well, we don't know yet. It's just a global goal on uh, enhancing adaptation, adaptive capacity, uh, capacity, strengthening resilience, and reducing vulnerability to climate change. Um, the Paris Agreement also calls on parties to strengthen their cooperation and also calls on parties to submit periodically information about the adaptation plan through the so-called adaptation communication. So the language of the agreement is also very different in a different part, and that's very important from a legal point of view. Sometimes there are uh, individual efforts which are uh, referred to as each party shall, as you can see in the screen. Sometimes there are just uh, uh, general commitments, so there is an establishment of a global goal, uh, or collective uh, commitments. So it, the, the Paris Agreement also have uh, a lot of different language in it, and uh, that's also why it is difficult to, to give an answer on what is the, actually the real legal force of this agreement. There are many different levels of engagement by, by parties in that. There is a reference to loss and damage, another very important mechanism, especially for uh, small island states and uh, LDCs. There is a reference to the loss and damage mechanism which was established in, in Warsaw in 2013. And uh, again, parties will have to continue to work on this, uh, on this specific issue. Very important part is also finance. But again, the Paris Agreement is also quite general in the finance section. Developed countries uh, should continue taking the lead. So the Paris Agreement doesn't create new uh, commitments, at least for now, in terms of finance to be provided by developed countries to developing countries, but it gives a certain continuity to what, is, what it was decided in Copenhagen and after Copenhagen. So parties will continue, developed countries will continue taking the lead in mobilizing climate finance. So the Green Climate Fund, which is very active uh, and is starting to function, especially this year, will continue. Um, but it's also very important that under the Paris Agreement, there is a requirement for developed countries to report on the support given to developing countries. The details of that, the procedures, the modalities are not defined yet. They will have to be defined to find uh, in the next years. And that links us to transparency. Uh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to the few slides in a second. The transparency is also another important part of the agreement. So how do we uh, assess what parties are doing in terms of both action and support? A transparency framework is established, which is uh, according to the, to the Paris Agreement uh, 
must be very much in line on which, with uh, what is the current transparency framework adopted by the Copenhagen Accord and after by the Cancun Agreements, so the differentiation among developing and developed countries. But again, the result and the, de the details of the new transparency framework will be formally adopted in the, few, in, in the next years. And the entire system is based on the technical expert review, so review by technical experts, uh, which uh, will have to provide reports, which will have to be considered by parties under, under the CMA. Um, and that's uh, the, the, the bone and the, the foundation of the transparency framework. Uh, there is also a section on technology and capacity building. The technology framework is established, uh, which en encourages accelerating and uh, e enabling innovation in this, uh, in this relation. Support must be uh, strengthened. And there is also a reference to capacity building and uh, how capacity building should be enhanced through cooperation among states. Also very important is that parties recognize the need to take stock of the global action in the future. So the CMA will host the first global stock take in 2013 and every five years after. Uh, so the implementation of the Paris Agreement will be uh, considered and discussed by parties periodically. And the outcome of this global stock take, which will happen in 2013, it will be to inform parties in updating and enhancing. So there is, in theory, a possibility for parties to improve and to increase the ambition and the efforts under the Paris Agreement uh, through this process, which is comprehensive and facilitative uh, in nature. Another key important point of the Paris Agreement is the implementation and compliance. A compliance system is envisaged by, this is actually established by the Paris Agreement, but it's a system which is different from the one which was agreed under the Kyoto Protocol. The system of compliance under the Paris Agreement is facilitative, expert-based, and will function in a manner that is transparent and non-adversarial and non-punitive. So it's a different system from the system established by the Kyoto Protocol and which much more limited powers. And that was, again, the result of a compromise. And in order to have on board key important parties, key important states under the Paris Agreement, this is, again, the price that we, we, that, um, uh, we had to pay in terms of uh, uh, legal force of the compliance regime. The Paris Agreement also refers and uh, to the institution setting, which is a typical part of the international treaty. So the CMA, which is the equivalent of the COP, of the Conference of the Parties, is established, and it will guide the implementation of the Paris Agreement as soon as it enters into force. And there are, of course, uh, uh, subsidiary bodies, and the Secretariat of the Convention will continue to work under the Paris Agreement. Uh, so now the, 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 the challenge is that for the Paris Agreement to, to enter into force, and in, in order to enter into force, it requires the ratification. And there is a ratification threshold very similar to the one of the Kyoto Protocol, which is established in Article 20. And only when the Paris Agreement will be ratified by the required states, it will enter into force, and it will be implemented as of 2020, as uh, inscribed by the Durban Mandate. Uh, there is no reservation possible under the Paris Agreement. And again, this was, uh, it may seem a very simple article, uh, just one line, but it was again the result of a long compromise among parties. There is a possibility for parties to withdraw from the Paris Agreement in the future, and that's uh, uh, the same possibility that we have, for instance, in the Kyoto Protocol, and we have seen that uh, in the Kyoto Protocol, Canada decided to withdraw just a few years before the end of the first commitment period. So again, there is this possibility. And the international, many international treaties have this, uh, this clause 
giving the possibility to sovereign states to decide whether to, to continue participating in the international regime or not. And together with the Paris Agreement, we also have the decision 1CP21, which is also uh, uh, designed the, 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 the way forward. Uh, so now, in a few days, the 22nd of April in New York, there will be a, f a formal ceremony for the uh, signature of the Paris Agreement, where many ministers and heads of state will show up. Um, there is a possibility to provisionally apply the Paris Agreement in between the signature and the ratification. The new, a new body has been established, the APA, which will prepare the agreement entering into force, which means they will conduct the negotiation on the many issues to, still to be decided, the market mechanism, uh, the transparency framework, and many other rules. And there will be shortly a new report by the Secretariat on uh, where we stand in terms of contribution by states. Um, and the decision 1CP21 also calls the IPCC to provide a special report on the impacts of global warming by 2018 in order to start a facilitative dialogue to take stock of the efforts. And that's uh, in the process of uh, reviewing the, the targets of the Paris Agreement. So here you see the, the way forward. Um, there are a lot of next steps which will be taken post-adoption, which means there is a lot of negotiation still to be conducted. The APA first session will take place in Bonn in a few, in a few weeks uh, in May, and um, COP21 will be held in Marrakesh. CMA1 will only take place when the um, agreement will enter into force, so when we reach the threshold of ratification. Uh, it will have to, be take, uh, to, be, to take place, of course, before 2020, but there is a lot of hopes and there is no doubt that uh, many parties will uh, continue to support the Paris Agreement through the ratification process, which is, of course, more complex than a signature and which requires much more, much longer time. So a few final considerations on the agreement. The compromise tax, which was achieved, is often cumbersome, but that's the reality and that's the result of uh, the procedure, of consensus, of this uh, UN uh, uh, process. There is a different type of language which is used, uh, treaty was adopted first, but rules will come afterwards, many of the rules, and that's again uh, a price we had to pay in order to have a success in Paris, but it's again uh, the same mistake which happened in Kyoto. The individual efforts of countries are relatively weak. They are voluntary contributions, uh, INDCs. There is no obligation to implement them, um, but this will give and will give the signal to the international community that for the first time all parties in the world will, uh, are together to implement an international treaty for the next years, for the next decades. And there is a lack of the enforcement mechanism. So the value of the Paris Agreement, um, I hope that these few slides um, um, helped, us, helped uh, you to understand a little bit more the value of the Paris Agreement, but clearly the real value of that will be given in the next years, how we will be reaching the, the, the objective. Uh, this will be determined by the Paris Agreement in itself, by the legal aspect, the, the legal character of it, and I've been trying to walk you through the different obligations for states, by its, if, its effectiveness, and by the political commitment, which will have to be continued, will have to be maintained. Only if there will be political commitment, uh, the efforts, the promises which have been presented by parties will become reality. So now there is a strong call on many developed countries, of many developing countries, to continue to, uh, to produce efforts on climate change and to, to, 
to give reality to the promises which were presented before Paris through these uh, uh, nationally determined contributions. With that, I can conclude that, and I thank you um, very much for your attention. And I just want to put up on the screen the email address to which we can address questions. Okay, uh, Leonardo, thank you very much. Um, I think it was a, a very, very interesting presentation, a very nice presentation. And I, I would like to, to remind you all here and also those uh, who are watching us um, through our live streaming uh, uh, that uh, we have a lot of materials that I think are quite complementary to, to Leonardo's presentation. Uh, I want to stress that because, I mean, some people may wonder, okay, they are talking about Paris like uh, four months or uh, after Paris, uh, perhaps they are not, uh, you know, kind of uh, um, doing a timely thing. We had done a lot before uh, Paris and just after Paris, uh, mainly from an economic point of view. And today with, with Leonardo, the, the idea was to bring a, a legal expert as him and a practitioner. Which is, which is important, right? The person who was there, who has been there, uh, and knows the, the, the intricacies of the, of the process. So um, we are receiving uh, a few questions. So there are some people uh, watching us and, and quite interesting questions. So um, let's do this. I, I'm now doing a, uh, some, some discussion on... on, on on your on your presentation, uh, then I I will go for the for the questions. Uh, Barbara, uh, uh, our administrative support is, is is checking the email from our office and, and sending and sending the emails to to us. Uh, we already have a few, so we we will deal with them uh, after my my discussion, and then we'll we'll have the the questions here because I mean we are more in a more relaxed. Uh, Situation and, 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 and we can continue more time, and, uh, and people in internet they may they may need to leave or whatever. So let me let me uh, <clears throat> present a few a few points or a few questions to 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 your to your very interesting uh, uh, presentation. First of all, I mean you started talking about a big success, right? And um, um, I, I, I think this is this is quite uh, common to people who who are experts or were following uh, the process, uh, but other people are not so so convinced with this, right? And uh, in particular, I'm, I know that you are aware of this open letter by by a few scientists. Uh, Mainly UK scientists uh, in in January saying that you know actually um, uh, Paris was not a success and giving this impression to the society to the people uh, would be even counterproductive because at the end uh, people may think that this is solved and politicians may think that this is solved and actually the 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 the, the agreement is, is, is probably not enough, and, and, and you already said that you know the, the current INDCs are not uh, in the in the right direction, right? Because we are more, I mean, we are closer to three degrees. So perhaps instead of big success, could we say that 
this is the best we could get. And uh, perhaps this is, uh, I, I think you, you also mentioned at some stage that, uh, that expression, right? Or something similar, that this is the best we could get. And now let's try to, to, to make it uh, work. Second comment. Um, it seems to us as economists that uh, this system of voluntary approaches uh, is not very uh, you know, good or effective or efficient to deal with a, with a problem like climate change, in the sense that this is a, a problem um, which leads to free riding. And free riding through voluntary approaches uh, is difficult to handle. And, and, and we are seeing it. Right? I mean, we are in three degrees instead of the two degrees. So um, I wonder whether, you know, we could uh, try to find a solution to this, and then I will, I will, I will mention a possible uh, approach, or perhaps I should mention it now, which is um, try to get the, the, the few uh, major actors in terms of mitigation, which may be the six, seven uh, countries, group of countries, like the EU, uh, US, uh, China, uh, Japan, India, into a kind of reinforced, uh, kind of a formal or informal uh, group within Paris, so that real mitigation, and not consensus-based uh, mitigation, because that's the, the real problem, right, uh, of, of, of Paris and, 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 and Kyoto, etc. right? Um, so, so that we could get a progress, real progress, uh, in terms of, of, of mitigation. If we have this group of countries trusting each other and being less worried about uh, carbon leakage, competitiveness issues, etc. Perhaps we can we can have progress and overcome the free riding problem, right? Of course, this breaks the um, kind of consensus-based UN approach, but we can keep it for first trying to keep the rest of the world also with some mitigation uh, commitments, even if it's. Uh, kind of a weaker uh, or based on a reduction of business as usual emissions, uh, but with increasing emissions, and also adaptation, finance, etc. I mean, these are the things we, we should have them um, for all, and, and with everybody uh, giving an opinion and, and participating, but perhaps mitigation uh, should be dealt uh, in a different way. I don't know. I mean, that's a question. I would like to know your your opinion. Also because we really need acting very soon. And that's another another of my comments. Uh, it seems that the impacts are, 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 are bigger than we expect, uh, are happening earlier. So these long processes of, uh, you know, like now we'll it will take 10 years uh, to, to have uh, the first uh, results of this. It's, they are probably, I mean, we cannot afford them, right? So, so that's um, another of my, of my points for, for a reinforced mitigation within the, 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 the Paris Agreement, but perhaps with a kind of club, kind of climate club of these main uh, emitters. 
Um, well, the, do you really think that 1.5 degrees is, is feasible? That, that would be another of my comments. Uh, we are already in one degrees, and uh, I think it will be really, really difficult even getting two degrees. So 1.5, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's probably out of our um, hands now. But, but I would like to know your, your opinion on this and, and if you heard uh, anything on the IPCC preparatory work of this report that they, they may be doing. Um, well, the role of prices, we are especially interested in prices here in this uh, unit in FSR climate. And it's a bit strange for us that uh, they don't appear at all uh, in, the, in, the, in the agreement. Of course, we have this, uh, this uh, chapter 6 or this uh, article 6, sorry, of the agreement. Some of the questions are on this. I won't uh, go in depth, but uh, but basically, at some stage, you you said, um, well, uh, they are very sensitive for some people, for some parties. We couldn't uh, progress here. So so perhaps I, I would like to know more more on this from your, from your side because applying prices is not necessarily bad for poorer countries. Or I mean, prices are not in themselves but from a distributional point of view. We need, of course, complementary policies, uh, but uh, prices uh, you know, can, can, can be very, very positive. Um, another question or comment I would like to, to make is the, the virtual disappearance of, of, of climate skeptics uh, from, from, from the map. You know, in Copenhagen they were very active. On before Copenhagen, uh, it seems that, the, that 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 this is not in question anymore. I would like to know your your view on this. If if uh, if this has definitely changed, or, or or there is still something over there. Also, I would like to know your role, uh, the, the role of the IPCC in the whole process of of of, of Paris. How you saw this. Uh, from inside and from outside, if the, if the assessment report uh, was really uh, important in order to get uh, an agreement there. Um, and also related to this, why has Copenhagen, why Copenhagen failed? I mean, what was the reason for that? I mean, uh, it was too early. Uh, perhaps many of the questions that were uh, finally agreed in Paris, they were some somehow in Copenhagen, but perhaps they were, I mean, uh, it was too early to get an agreement on that and, and we had to wait for, for Durban and other, and other uh, uh, meetings uh, to get this. Uh, the crisis could um, have played a role there in Copenhagen, but management by the Danish uh, could uh, play a role as well. Uh, I would like to know your, your opinion because I know that you were also involved in, the, in that process. And that way we can also uh, identify uh, possibilities uh, so that Paris can be a success at the end, right? Because it's, it may, it may help us. Um, What's your roadmap from now? I mean, 
this is quite vague from 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 Paris, right? I mean, we know that uh, uh, in the second part of the century, net emission should be zero. So that means that if we have developed countries like the EU towards 2050 uh, with the full decarbonization, and let's imagine that the US and Japan and, and other you know, developed economies are doing more or less the same, still emerging countries, uh, developing countries, uh, probably they won't be decarbonized. Uh, I mean, probably, almost sure, right? So how we, do we compensate these emissions? I mean, uh, are we thinking only of uh, these natural uh, depositories of carbon or carbon capture and, and storage seems to be really far away? And, and, and you know, 2050 is not that far away from us. And, and in, in a way, that, that technology seems to be uh, really immature at, at this moment and with no signals of, of progress. So I would like to, to know your your roadmap based on on this on this situation. And uh, well I have a few questions but uh, but I think uh, I, I I stop here. Uh, perhaps I I ask for your quick reactions to some of the of, of the points and then we go to the questions. Yeah thank you and yes I'm gonna give you a quick reaction on that, and of course uh, we will have plenty of time also to discuss that uh, among ourselves. Well, first of all, uh, uh, big success. Well, I'm always accused uh, to be very pessimistic, and um, I was before Paris, and maybe also now, also maybe because I'm involved in this process uh, since so many years. So I wanted to start with a, with, a, with a nice message, especially in this beautiful morning in Florence, with the sun, so I wanted to, to contribute to that. Many have uh, welcomed the agreement as a big success. I would say that it's a big success in terms of um, diplomacy, in terms of uh, the entire process, especially if you compare that with, uh, with the big failure that we had in Copenhagen. So it's a big success in terms of keeping uh, the international community together and keeping them together and cooperate among them. Uh, but of course, uh, my pessimism uh, didn't go away with Paris, and, uh, and I'm also aware that uh, yeah, the, the, the Paris Agreement uh, in terms of uh, contribution to the climate is, is, quite, uh, is qu quite weak. Um, there are many unresolved issues with the Paris Agreement, uh, which will have to be dealt in the, in the next years. That's uh, um, what I have been mentioning a lot. Um, so it's the best we could get, yes, in, uh, in terms of political commitment. Uh, just to remind that all the heads of state and government were in Paris. Uh, um, there was no possibility to failure. Um, but it's, uh, it can be also defined as a weak in agreement in terms of uh, um, reduction obligation. There are some other scholars, some other experts which are calling the Paris Agreement just a statement of good intentions. Uh, voluntary agreement, I, I, I will not go so far, so far but uh, definitely uh, we, could do, we could have done more and we should do more. Um, you refer to, the, to this uh, voluntary approach. Is it good? Is it effective? Of course, we will know that uh, in, in the next decades. For sure, we can say that the Kyoto Protocol approach, which is a completely different approach, didn't pay off. The Kyoto Protocol uh, uh, 
um, approach did not result in what the international community expected. Now we have only a few developed countries, especially the Europeans, which are very much in love with the Kyoto Protocol, but the reality is that many developed countries have just left the Kyoto Protocol and uh, I doubt they will ever come back. Uh, so the approach of the Kyoto Protocol could not be followed by Paris, by the negotiation. Also, this strong compliance regime would never have been accepted by many parties in, in, in Paris. So um, this is the reality, the reality of consensus, the reality of this system uh, bringing everyone together. So your idea of having a so-called climate club of main emitters or coalition of willingness, uh, reinforced action by some, it's, it's a good idea. Uh, unfortunately, it's not there at the moment. It was not really there in Paris, at least in public. There was a coalition of willingness uh, mentioned in the final days of Paris, but this was including the EU and small island states, so we're talking about something different. What you were referring is probably uh, a good idea, a good idea which could be explored. Actually, we have already the G20. We have already some international institutions that could tackle that point. And we definitely need more um, commitment by the big emitters. But I have to say that at the moment, this is not there. And I don't know when it will be there, um, especially uh, if you talk about reinforced action. I mean, in the European Union, we have a reinforced action mechanism under the treaty, so it's very structured. Here we are talking about yeah, UN treaties. And, uh, and of course, this not, cannot be possible within that uh, time frame. It's uh, something else which could be possible uh, in other fora, definitely. And it's a good idea, um, which yeah, should be explored. Um, the 1.5 degrees, um, yeah, as you already mentioned, rightly said, the, the, the world is already reaching a 1. degrees augmentation of the temperature last year. So we are very close to reach already the 1. target. My impression, I'm not a scientist, my, my impression is that we will never get to a 1.5 uh, degree. So we hope that uh, some of these scenarios the IPCC are, are not correct. <laughs> but uh, with the Paris Agreement, definitely we will never get to 1.5 degrees, at least with the, with the NDCs that we have now. And let's also remember that the, the system of NDCs, the National Determined Contribution, is based on uh, government action, on national action. Many of those are from developing countries, and many of these NDCs are conditional to support, to be received to financial and technological support. So even when we count all of our NDCs as being already implemented, we have to make sure that this will be done in reality. So we have to make sure that in the next years, developed countries uh, will show the same, uh, uh, the same uh, ambition and support developing countries. So it's also not a given that the NDCs that have been presented so far will be implemented as they are. Actually, it's a very complicated uh, process. Um, the IPCC role has been recognized by the Paris Agreement. Uh, now we have uh, a call for reports. If these reports have been important to get to an agreement, well, I actually don't know. I have sincerely, honestly, not seen any, any, any delegate or decision-maker reading any report of the IPCC in Paris. <laughs> Probably they, will have been re they have been reading very well then before that, but I doubt. And so IPCC reports are important, are important for, for the pressure. Uh, and even the summary for policymakers, which is only 30 pages, is not read by many, I can assure you. And that's the reality. Uh, why the COP failed in, in, the, in Denmark? Well, there were, there were a lot of uh, expectations were very high in Copenhagen. 
much higher than in Paris. So the French diplomacy was also very good in keeping low expectation with the Paris Agreement. There were definitely some procedural mistakes by the co-presidency in Copenhagen by the Danish, the issue of consensus. Uh, so that's why the COP failed. Uh, there were really a lot of expectation. And actually the French uh, did really manage well the Paris Agreement. It did, they did invite the heads of state only the first two days of the event and not at the final days as it was in Copenhagen. So in the final days, hours, there were only ministers present in the meeting, and this helped uh, delegations and delegates to get to an agreement. And all, uh, the, the Prime Minister of France only showed up at the very end when the result was, uh, was of course, uh, granted. And uh, actually, the Copenhagen Accord is in many parts much more ambitious than the Paris Agreement. This also must be said. Uh, what is the future? What is the roadmap after Paris? Yeah, the rules will have to be defined in the future. The EU is going towards full decarbonization. This, of course, uh, is, not done, is not the same by many developing countries, by many big emitters, unfortunately. And uh, we have to find a way to compensate those emissions. So, yeah, carbon, uh, natural sinks like forest. So there's a lot to do in the forest area, in the forest section. And this could be a, pool, a very important pool of greenhouse gases for the planet. Uh, the technical technologies like CCS are not yeah, going too, too, too fast as, uh, as expected. So what we have to do is we have a lot to do. And uh, unfortunately, I must say that the international fora and uh, agreements such as Paris and uh, UN model-based are probably not the answer to that. Uh, the answer will have to come by, by states, by regional uh, organizations. And that's actually what has been done and what is being done on the ground already. So the Paris Agreement uh, uh, success can be seen also as a... As a as, a, as an instrument that should enhance action, should boost action at the, at the local level. And of course, the role of uh, market instrument is very important there. And uh, the fact that the Paris Agreement is so vague on this issue, it doesn't stop uh, countries, uh, the uh, regions like the EU and states to move on on this, on this important aspect. Um, and there were many parties, uh, and there are still many parties which are skeptical about these new market-based uh, mechanisms. Uh, just to mention a few, uh, Bolivia is very skeptical, also Brazil has a lot of doubt. So it was, and it is still a very, very difficult discussion, which uh, I'm not sure it will take us uh, too far. So it's important that these uh, um, market instruments uh, can be, and uh, will be developed uh, for sure at the, at the regional level. Thank you, Leo. Um, I'm going to, to, to give you now few questions from the external audience, as I said before. We're having you know, plenty of questions, so, so this is working. Thanks uh, a lot to, to those of you who are watching us, and apologies if we cannot uh, deal with all the questions you are sending. Um, first question from Roberto Benafro from Edison in Rome. Um, he, related to the market-based uh, instruments, uh, he, he says, the Article 6 of the agreement sets provisions to promote cooperation among parties to meet their INDCs. Um, it will be possible to utilize the internationally transferred mitigation outcomes. This is clearly a market mechanism. The question is, how could this mechanism be implemented? Is it a mechanism like a CDM implemented within the Kyoto Protocol? Okay, thank you, Xavier. Thank you for the question. Um, yeah, it is uh, definitely a market-based mechanism. Yeah, it can be seen as, as, uh, as, as like that by many. 
Uh, I'm sure many others will, uh, will challenge this, uh, this statement. But um, yes, it can be seen as a market-based instrument. I think it's not very much uh, in the CDM style like Kyoto Protocol. I would refer to this uh, instrument more uh, in, in a way which is more similar to the emissions trading system which was created by the Kyoto Protocol. So we are talking about here the possibility of parties, of states, to exchange or, uh, or to cooperate in the exchange of these so-called uh, internationally transfer mitigation outcomes or reduction units or something like that. And again, the, the guidance, guidance will be developed by the CMA, will have to be developed by the CMA. Uh, but this already gives the, the, the possibility to states to exchange among themselves uh, those uh, contributions. It's not very much, according to my opinion, a CDM-style uh, mechanism. And uh, if you want to go to a more CDM-style mechanism, you, I think you have to look more at Article 6.4, which is referring to the, to the mechanism to contribute to mitigation of greenhouse gas emission and support sustainable development, which... Um, is, uh, according to my interpretation, more in the style of a CDM uh, mechanism, since it will also have a body designated by the COP to, to oversight that. The, the first one, which was referred by, by, uh, by the, the, the question proposed, the, 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 the question is more in the sense of uh, uh, cooperation among states at the national level. So I see that more in the line of the emission trading system created by the Kyoto Protocol. Another question, this uh, from Eduardo Reyes, Climate Change Senior Advisor at Geothermia. Uh, thanks for this excellent presentation. From your PPT, it is not clear what Article 9 finance means in terms of real financing action to developing countries. From your point of view, do you believe that the goal of uh, GCF will be achieved under convention and not outside it? Annex 1 countries claim that funds are following are flowing as agreed in Cancun, but developing countries don't. Please make some additional comments on. Yeah. Uh, then, if you could give us uh, your point of view of the possible relation of Article 6 and Article 5. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the question. And uh, finance, the finance article is, uh, as again, a result of a compromise, so it must be read in that, in that sense. It gives a signal in the sense that uh, the, the, the system created by Copenhagen and by the Cancun agreements will be maintained, so parties will have to continue to, to give, uh, developed countries will have to continue to, to provide funding to developing countries. Uh, Article 9 must also be, re be read in conjunction with the, the COP decision paragraph on finance, um, which refers to the fact that developed countries will intend to continue their existing mobilization goal through 2025, but it also will be um, uh, a new collective goal which will have to be set by the CMA uh, before 2025 uh, for a new quantified goal from a floor of USD 100 billion per year, which means that there is some meat also in terms of finance in the final result of Paris. This is not in the text of the agreement, but can be found in the text of uh, of decision 1CP21. What is important is also that uh, for the first time, thanks to, the, to this uh, agreement, uh, developed countries will also have to produce information about the support provided. This is also a very sensitive issue. And again, the details will have to be defined in the future, but it will be important that we establish a strong and robust mechanism for 
the so-called uh, um, monitoring or support provided. So we have to know how much funding is be channeled from developed to developing. And this is uh, for sure not a very simple task. It's not very easy. This has been done by uh, NGOs, by think tanks already in many, in many areas, but it's not always very simple to report and to report objective information, uh, especially because developed countries are referring to some numbers and developing countries are differ referring to others. So it's not a very simple task. The GCF uh, is uh, operati operative now and it's attracting a lot of attention. It will be important that this uh, system of funding provided by the GCF, by the Green Climate Fund, will be monitored again by, by the parties. But uh, my idea and my interpretation is that this will be working in the future. Now this GCF has already developed different modalities for different areas and uh, there is a lot of attention on that. And uh, on six and five, yes, there is Article 5 on forest and Article 6, uh, um, there is uh, uh, a reference in Article 6 to the NDCs. So uh, my interpretation is also that uh, actions in the forest sector has been mentioned by many parties in their NDCs. So definitely they could also be part of this mechanism established under Article 6 since are part uh, uh, of these uh, nationally determined contributions. Um, which have been presented by many parties. Okay, I have uh, a couple of questions more that I would like to, to, to give you. And you don't need to, to answer all, all the questions because we have the emails. So some, some of the questions, we, I mean, you can interact with the, with the people answer, asking. So this question comes from the Herve Mathiasin um, from um, JB Councils and Energy Renewables. In, in, in France. Um, so he says that senior experts of uh, renowned multinational organizations, uh, UNIDO, UNOPS, UNICEF, see um, um, they, 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 this person is, 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 uh, is, they are senior experts to these organizations and the, key, the question they are sending is, why carbon tax has not been more specifically discussed in Paris, but only written as a consideration? Our ideas of their organization. One, because they didn't want to have a possibility of unsuccess. Two, um, they, the, this person who is asking, they had a contact with the, with the, with the climate ambassadors, uh, ambassador from France, but no clear answer from, from, from the French on this issue, and uh, their proposal is to have a carbon tax on the range of 30 to 80, 100 US dollars per ton, given the economic sensibility for a given all country or developing, developing level country. But carbon taxes should be linked also to other criteria, social, financial, water mitigation, etc. So. Yeah, I mean, the, the answer here is quite straightforward. There was no, no room for a compromise on this issue, on the issue of carbon taxes. Actually, the issue of carbon taxes was also not part of the negotiation as, uh, as an open issue on the floor. Um, so as you can see from uh, my presentation, also from the text of the Paris Agreement, from the language, I mean, uh, uh, it would have been impossible to, to reach a, a compromise on, on this specific issue. So the... Uh, there was no room for, for that uh, in, the, in the Paris Agreement. And uh, so this will have to be tackled at the national or regional level. 
And the last question I'm, I'm, I'm giving before I, I give the floor to the, to the attendants physically here uh, is from Gabriela Salmon from the University of Mannheim in Germany. Uh, she says, uh, first of all, I want to thank Leonardo Masai for the very enlightening presentation about the last international meetings regarding climate change. My question, do you think that there will be ever a chance to make international laws that actually force countries to protect and respect the agreements? And if so, what kind of sanctions do you think could be effective to make the countries apply the laws for the fight, for the fight against uh, climate change? Okay, thank you for the question. Uh, well, there's no international law but that can force an a sovereign state to, to do something. Uh, the Kyoto Protocol is a very advanced treaty and there we have an example of a very strong uh, compliance committee, a group of uh, international experts can take very important decisions which are co imposing consequences of states. Uh, We're not talking about sanctions, of course, in, in the field of international environmental law. Uh, so there are mechanisms which are existing. Uh, the Kyoto Protocol example is one, and uh, the, the, the Paris Agreement uh, unfortunately took another approach. So we now will have another mechanism under the Paris Agreement, but uh, much uh, uh, weaker than the one existing in the Kyoto Protocol, uh, and it will be in, the, in, in a facilitative uh, uh, manner. So there is not inter an international system to force states to... To, to comply with the international treaties uh, as such. Um, but of course, international treaties are open to sovereign states, and sovereign states are also have the possibility to withdraw from those treaties, and that's what happened, for instance, with Canada and the Kyoto Protocol. Um, but again, this is a, a price that we have to pay for, uh, for having a global agree agreement. Okay, thank you very much uh, to the people sending the questions. And now um, let's go to the, to the people here in the room in Villa Malafrasca. Um, yeah, uh, I, I will ask you to, to introduce yourselves. And uh, despite we don't have a kind of a sound system here, we have to talk to the, to the mic uh, so that they... they... Hello, Nardo. Thank you very much for our presentation. If I may just uh, to ask you less as a legal expert, but more as a person that personally is convinced about the things you are doing, usually the driver is civil society. On climate change, I don't know exactly where we, what could we expect from civil society, because to make NDCs more commitment-rich and also more accountable, civil society should be more present or more stronger expressing this view. What are your expectations from civil society? And if I could ask another point that is, could be also quite critical in changing, I think, dynamics of the whole process, it is the Green Fund. Because a lot of countries expect that there will be some support. Green Fund, uh, well, uh, uh, it's not legal mechanisms so much but it is financial incentive mechanism that could help again accelerate things or make the things uh, differently. And as I'm coming from energy, uh, uh, what do you expect from the energy branch? I've just given paradox because some countries that have very well, I think, represented themselves in Paris, at the same time announced that they will increase fossil fuel production by 20, 35, or 40, 50 percent. 
Well, you could assume that there will be common capture storage utilities, whatever. But still, there is some paradox in it, and uh, would not be uh, avenue that uh, resource-rich countries uh, try, well, to, to elaborate also something like a Paris Agreement one or something like mini agreement, a bit different type of rules, and and because it will include less countries involved in negotiations, and perhaps that's the way forward. Thank you very much for for your question. Civil society is very important, and is also very active, and has been driving a lot uh, the process inside, outside, and also, actually, I would say that uh, civil society is also a very good contributor to, to the cause of climate change. Civil society, uh, we can refer to that as not only NGOs, but also the private sector, the, the business, the academics. So they contribute a lot to the process, uh, directly and indirectly. Uh, they are producing a lot of reports. Also, they can do some mission of views to the, to the, to the process. And of course, they are not involved directly in the negotiations although some delegations now are hosting more and more representatives of the civil society in their delegations, so they can also be in the, in the negotiating rooms, which are obviously closed in the majority of the cases. But the civil society is very important, and is driving a lot this process, but also beyond this process, beyond Paris. So now the very good examples that we have in terms of reduction of greenhouse gas emissions are mainly coming from... Uh, the civil society, which means, yes, um, NGOs, but also the private sector. And, uh, and uh, the market instruments which are developed now and that will have to be developed in the future are also very much taking into consideration the instances of the civil society. And many mechanisms of the, of the Paris Agreement uh, recognize the role of uh, stakeholders uh, uh, in the text itself, but of course, then countries themselves, they have a specific role for for stakeholders. The Green Climate Fund is a good example. It's not um, a, a legal instrument, correctly. It's a financial incentive. It's mainly dealing with public funding. Uh, so it's, uh, it's um, uh, fed into by public funding provided by, by states. And this will have to work, and it will probably work in the future. Now we have just a few years of, uh, of uh, operationalization of the Green Climate Fund. This year is very important. So now we have a lot of attention, a lot of pressure on this, on this uh, uh, fund. And there is uh, money which has been placed by parties to it, so it will, uh, it will work. But this will have to be accompanied by also private incentives. And uh, I will refer that specifically to, to market incentives. Uh, so the, the, the Green Climate Fund alone will not be able to, to resolve all the, all the questions and all the need for funding, which is uh, very big from the perspective of developing countries. But many developing countries are putting a lot of hopes in the Green Climate Fund. Um, the energy um, incentive countries, um, yeah, that's the reality. Of course, many NDCs uh, also include a reference to uh, cuts in the energy sector. But also, the, then the national reality must be to, taken into consideration. We have in Europe the example of uh, the Energy Charters, which is a, a, a treaty on energy, but it's uh, actually uh, not so effective. So the idea of having a different type of uh, or um, treaty or uh, or approach for a, a smaller number of countries, yeah, it is. Possible, but I see. I doubt that this is a reality, at least at the international level. So again, it should be more a regional approach, I guess. 
Um, and because unfortunately that's, uh, again, the, the, the road that many countries are following is still to go for, uh, for some fossil fuel. And uh, that's very much related also with, uh, with the cost of combating climate change. And we can see that very openly also in Europe. Thank you. There was a question we, we had received and that I, I, I didn't uh, tell you. And I think it's, uh, it's interesting because it, it hasn't been raised by, by other people, by uh, Andrea Marroni um, from AF Consult Italy. Uh, so uh, what are the next steps for implementing red uh, plus mechanisms, Article 5, and which position is taken by Brazil in, in this respect? Yeah, there are, um, the, the Red Plus mechanism now is defined by a lot of decisions by the COP, adopted since 2007. And now, so we have the set of um, technical and methodological guidance which has been adopted. So now, start parties in developing countries, in rainforest nations, are ready to implement the Red Plus mechanism. Uh, what is needed is for sure uh, support, financial support for developing countries because there are a lot of requirements which uh, must be fulfilled by developing countries in order to implement the Red Plus properly as required by the rules, by the international rules. So what is needed is support, financial support and capacity building, technological support. Many of these countries, they have to produce greenhouse gas inventories, reports, they go, have to go on the field, track, and to measure how much uh, carbon is emitted or is sequestered. So there is a lot to do. And of course, there is a lot to do also in terms to convince the local communities that they should change uh, behaviors, they should change their style of life, and in order to do so, you really need to, to give incentives to, to these uh, count, uh, communities which are living mostly on, on, those, uh, on those assets. Um, so I think that, uh, that actually addressed the question. Um, Jordan Vichido from the FSR Climate here in Fiance. Uh, thank you for your presentation. It's been very clear. I just have a um, couple of thoughts, comments, questions, which are very fast. Uh, one of them is, uh, since the IPCC, the last reports were um, more and more talking about carbon budgets, because we know that from science that we can now quantify the, the, the amount of emissions allowable. It seems to me very natural to confront these intended national contributions to those to this carbon budget. So, what is what what is your your thoughts on, on on this future? Because at the end of the day, what I'm listening is that well, the best of the COP21 is yet to arrive, no, in this roles, no, because now we have this very nice box with everybody on board, but uh, it's an empty box. So. What, you, what is your, your opinion on that? And then, uh, taking advantage of your close uh, perspective on the negotiations uh, among parties, and these are court countries, um, what, I mean, which is the role that capital connections play in these negotiations? I mean, of course, there is different intended contributions between Europe and China, but a lot of capital in Europe is actually investing in China. So I guess that I'm asking for the carbon leakage and also for the differences in not only in production emissions, but also in the consumption. So at the end, European capital is investing in one country and then they are emitting in there, but Europe is saying another intended contribution. So with these kind of relations, which, which, which role or do you think maybe, I mean, what, what do you have from your perspectives? For you, for 
your experience uh, seen in this in this in this matter. Thank you. Thank you for the question. And uh, yeah, the INDC is uh, is um, it's a complex um, uh, element uh, which are uh, at the foundation of the agreement. Uh, it's uh, is it possible to compare INDCs with the IPCC data or carbon budgets? Um, not always. Actually, it's not actually very simple. INDCs are nationally contribution, but um, unfortunately. In, the, in this setting, in the COP, in Lima, uh, it was not possible to agree on a common format. So all countries, they have to give their own contribution, but they are free to choose uh, whatever year they want, base year, gases, sectors. So we actually often comparing peers with apples. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to compare the INDCs. Many of them, they have different assumptions. Some are using and considering the forest, some not. Some they're considering the market contribution, some not. The sectors covered are different. And of course, there are more and more differences when you deal with uh, INDCs from developing countries. And also the level of detail of the INDC is very different. So it's very, very difficult to compare them. And that's unfortunately due to the fact that parties could not agree on common formats. And there was, again, a very long discussion about, uh, about that. So you have now indices which have different um, time frames, different base years. So it's very, very difficult. Uh, but there is a need for developed countries. And you were referring to the relation between EU and China. There is a need for developed countries to follow up on INDCs and to support developing countries. Um, especially the, 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 the poorest and the smallest, which are also those which have more space for development. Um, and therefore, it's very important that parties, which uh, develop countries, which put a lot of attention on indices before Paris, they will continue to do so. Also, the Green Climate Fund is opening some, uh, some, uh, um, some channels to support INDCs. Uh, but it's, of course, also a question of relation among capitals and, and, uh, and, and countries. Um, of course, if you're talking about EU and China, then the, the relation is there uh, probably um, even stronger. But it's important that also the small developing countries, which are also are producing and, and giving a lot of potential for reduction, are supported and are following this process. Um, but uh, the INDC process is a, it's a very complex one. Uh, there is a lot of support needed, but also this must be monitored. Um, and therefore, it requires a lot of cooperation, a lot of international cooperation if we want this to, to work out. And even if this if it would work out, we have seen that the numbers are still uh, uh, low. So I hope this addresses uh, your comments. More questions from... Uh, first, thanks a lot, uh, Renardo. Very interesting. Uh, quick question. Ah, Claudio Marcantonini from the Florence School of Regulation Climate. Um, if you can uh, uh, comment on monitoring and reporting, because it looks to me this is an important issue is that the member states have to monitoring and reporting the INDC. So the other, this means that the other party should know what they are doing. And uh, um, I want to ask if this is legally binding. I mean, we know it's not legally binding the achievement, but in my interpretation, is legally binding this monitoring and reporting. Yeah, again, this is a very good question. A lot of discussion, very hot topic. How do we assess what countries are doing? We will probably not have uh, a very strong compliance regime, we had said already. So we have to refer to this uh, transparency framework. Monitoring reporting is uh, referred to in the Paris Agreement as a transparency framework, 
which first, first must be based on the rules that we have already now, which are based on the Cancun agreements, uh, which says that parties, they have to produce information on what they're doing, and experts, technical experts, independent experts, uh, have to review what they're saying. Uh, the result is a, is a discussion. So it's, again, it's a facilitative process. So the result of these expert um, reviews are discussed, put on the table in front of the COP, in this case on the CMA, and there will be an open discussion. So it's, uh, it's very much in line with, uh, with the concept of naming and shaming. That's, uh, the, the, but the details of, the formal details of the transparency framework are not there yet. Eh? So the Paris Agreement only tells us that we have to build on what is existing now, and that's the Cancun Agreement. But uh, uh, the new rules will have to be formally adopted by, in the future by the CMA at this, its first session. Uh, so the transparency, what we can say for sure is that uh, this system of uh, technical expert reviews will continue. And this will be the basis of that. So which means that there will be open um, reports put on the table in front of the world, in front of the COP, which will have to be discussed where everybody can see what parties will be doing. And it is, of course... Uh, not legally binding in the, in the, in the strict sense of the, of the term. So there will be no, at, at this stage, there is uh, no consequences foreseen for not meeting the indices. Uh, that would uh, go against the, the approach of uh, the Paris Agreement. Um, I have three questions. Uh, one is whether um, you know whether there have been examples in international law of similar uh, agreements. Uh, non-legally -binding, non binding and self-determined uh, with self-determined commitments and uh, if there were or, or otherwise whether this is uh, really the first of its own um, or its own kind uh, another question is whether you expect new institutions to be created um, you, you briefly mentioned before that you, you think that many aspects will be dealt with in different uh, uh, I don't know whether regional uh, organizations, but in different um, uh, places, in different institutions. But do you think that also that brand new institutions will be uh, create, created? And uh, the, finally, um, we tend to, especially non-experts, tend to um, pr uh, talk about developing countries versus developed countries. And I personally know little about the differences, I mean, the diversity that there is within the develop developing countries, the developing uh, bloc. Uh, so if you give us some indications about the different expectations and the different types of levels of commitments on the part of uh, different developing countries. Thank you. Thank you for the questions. And uh, um, this is not definitely not the first example of um, such uh, an agreement in international environmental law. Uh, I would say that the, the Paris Agreement is legally binding, um, but it's not, uh, it's quite, it's not so, so strong. But it is definitely legally binding in terms of international law, which means that it's an international treaty which creates obligations that must be fulfilled by parties. That's uh, uh, the definition. But there are, of course, um, examples of other treaties now. Uh, that no one can come into my mind, but uh, this is not new in the, in the system of multilateral environmental agreements. I was asking this to know, you know, uh, what to expect from this, you know, whether p previous examples uh, worked. I mean, the, whether a virtuous circle was triggered by this. Uh, so that's why I was asking. That was the reason why I was asking this question. 
Yeah, yeah, and indeed, uh, this approach, is, again, as I said already, is mainly based on the fact that the Kyoto Protocol approach didn't pay off. Uh, so, yeah, there are examples that they worked, and uh, yeah, I think and I hope that this uh, will work as well. Um, new institutions by the Paris Agreement, uh, there will probably be a discussion on institution for capacity building, but otherwise there will be probably no new institution created. There was also a very point, important point which was stressed by many developed countries in Paris. They didn't want new institutions to be created. Um, if you refer to new institutions outside this, uh, that would, may be possible, but uh, as far as I know, I'm not aware of any, and it will take time, uh, I think. Um, uh, especially if we refer to what Xavier was mentioning as a uh, reinforced action of Climate Club. Yeah, these are good ideas, but I don't see them happening uh, in, the, in the near future. Developing countries, yeah, these are referenced into the Paris Agreement, but there are differences. Yeah, the Paris Agreement also refers to LDCs, least developed countries, which are the most vulnerable, and small island states. So many times there are exceptions uh, allowed uh, or reservations in some areas allowed to those categories. And developing countries is, of course, a big group and it's very controversial. Uh, the Paris Agreement doesn't go into much details of that because it, would, it wouldn't have been possible, but definitely there are different interests. And also, you can see that uh, uh, also from the level of the indices presented by, by the different developing countries. But uh, within the developing countries, of course, you have the big emitters. Um, but the Paris Agreement in particular, uh, leave and give some space and some flexibility for LDCs and small island states, uh, which are those countries which are most vulnerable um, to climate change. Um, just one more question. Uh, hi, I'm Nicholas. I work for the uh, Florence School of Regulation. Um, I, was, I think it struck me and a few other people that Article 5 was the most novel aspect. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what created the political impetus for that to happen now. And I was also wondering what you, or if you consider the kind of existential threats to the agreement, uh, perhaps another global economic crisis or a climate denialist in the White House, for instance. Thank you. Sorry, can you repeat Article 5? What is your question? Article um, I was just wondering if you could talk about what created the political impetus for that to happen now, as opposed to earlier or later. Yeah, again, Article 5 was um, the one on force. It was quite controversial. Um, many countries did not even want the mentioning of, uh, of Red Plus before Paris, including the European Union, including uh, Brazil, and um, there are different reasons, and many of those are actually unknown to, to, to me and to many, which actually what the Article 5 did is only recognizing the, the, the work which has been done so far uh, and trying to, to, um, to close the, the discussion on that. Uh, so now, the, the, as I mentioned before, the key there would be that um, the developed countries or the Green Canal Fund, the market-based instrument, will uh, give uh, Reinforced Nation the, the fund, the support, the technological support, the capacity building to, to, do, uh, to do Red Plus, which is uh, really a, uh, one of the few uh, good potential that we have in the world to, to, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And there are a lot of projects, a lot of countries doing that bilaterally, uh, support to Reinforced Nations, um, um, the European Union is doing a lot on that, so there is a lot going on outside of the Paris Agreement uh, uh, scheme. Yeah, I think uh, I hope I addressed all your points. Yeah, uh, but there's my second question as well: um, uh, threats to the agreement, um, economic or political? 
the threats to the agreement, um, economic or political. If there's a global economic crisis or um, a climate denialist in the White House or something, will the agreement survive or will confidence in the agreement survive, something like that? Well, the, 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 the confidence in the agreement, I think it will survive. The, the, for instance, the U.S. and many other states um, will uh, announce in a few days their signature, and they will, uh, they will support, I think, the Paris Agreement also in the future. Uh, the economic crisis um, in the past has helped a lot reducing greenhouse gas emissions, especially in Europe. Uh, so I don't see many troubles uh, in, uh, in the support on the agreement in the future. Uh, so I also see a very smooth process for ratification. So I think it won't take us uh, eight years as it took us for Kyoto to, to see this agreement enter into force. Thank you. Well, uh, I think we, we're closing now because we've been here for almost two hours, more than expected, but, uh, you know, First, the, the, the audience here had, had many questions, and, and also myself, I had many questions for you, and, and, and we had a lot of questions coming from outside. So thanks a lot, Leonardo. I think it was really useful for, for us to have your perspective, to, to, to have your, your thoughts, which are not only based on, on your expertise as an academic, but also as a person participating um, directly, um, either assessing countries or, uh, you know, as a, as a consultant uh, in all the process. So I'm sure that we will continue collaborating with you in our unit. Um, and uh, thanks a lot. I mean, we we will put uh, Leonardo in touch with the, with the people who, who, who wrote uh, the questions in case, uh, in case uh, some of the questions uh, could not be answered. Uh, and um, definitely we, we look forward to continue um, collaboration with our audience uh, here in the, in the house, in the UI and outside. Thanks a lot.